Well, at least you're not in a straitjacket this time, Geoffrey. Tis a cruelty to load a falling man. Sorry. Let's cut to the chase, shall we? Are you dead or am I insane? I don't see why those two thoughts are mutually exclusive. Well, if I'm insane, then I'm talking to myself, aren't I? And I'm a figment of your deranged mind. Aye. I'd rather be dead, thank you very much. And I do not want to be insane. I refuse to be insane. That's the spirit. So I'm going to assume that you're a ghost, Oliver. It's the only sane thing to do, given the circumstances. Right. Okay, so you're dead then. If you say so. All right. What's it like? The undiscovered country. It's not really far off from what I expected, really. Is it a relief, though? It must be a great relief, being dead. Has death put an end to the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to? My knee doesn't bother me anymore. More than anything, I feel forgotten. Like an old phone number. I feel like I'm barely here at all. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, yes. Death really isn't worth the effort, Jeffrey. Welcome back to Who and Company. My name is Brent. And I'm Drew. When I attended my very first Doctor Who convention in 2014, I was as excited to meet this month's guest as I was to meet any of the con guests. He can always be counted upon to deliver well-considered insights, which he will do admirably over the next 90 minutes. It's podcaster Eric Stadnick. But first, our UK team has a thing or two to say about the release of the Tom Baker Season 1 Blu-ray with a very special guest of their own. And all that's coming up right after this. Hello and welcome once again to the London branch of Who and Company, this time live. Well, we're always live when we record it, but this time <laughs> we're in a cafe with two other alive people. So, hello Ian, once again, good to see you're still alive. Good afternoon, James. And a special guest. Now, considering that Ian and I are guests on Drew and Brent's show, you are guests of the guests. This is Adam J. Purcell from Staggering Stories. Hello, Adam. Hello, how are you doing? I'm alive too. Yeah, well, I think that's debatable. Uh, probably. Now, the reason we are recording all together is, one, because we were coming out to see each other anyway, and Who and Company is all about the camaraderie that Doctor Who can stimulate and, uh, and sustain. <laughs> we've just had a very nice meal, and we've been discussing virtually every TV show ever made, uh, yeah. or every genre show ever made, I we think. Spit. 
Wizbit was very good. I enjoyed the discussion about Paul Daniels there. But Adam has had the pleasure of attending the latest British Film Institute event, which both Ian and I didn't. We were otherwise occupied or oblivious to the fact that it was happening. <laughs> Mostly oblivious. <laughs> That's our default, really. Um, but how was it, Adam? It's Genesis of the Daleks, uh, the edit, the film edit version, the omnibus, and it's really good. Uh, there's a Q&A afterwards with uh, Hinchcliffe, obviously the producer at the time. No Tom Baker, sadly. But uh, they also showed some bits from the upcoming, as we record anyway, the upcoming Blu-ray box set of season 12. Mm. And this, was, this is pretty much what it was staged to celebrate, wasn't it? This, this mythical, so sell. far, release of, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, of, uh, of season 12. Although, having said that, um, it has been released in America already. However, yep. the livery and the branding um, is, is identical to the UK version, <laughs> with the exception of one small detail. They've called it season one. Okay. Uh, what? Interesting uh, choice. <laughs> well, it's funny because over dinner we were discussing Doctor Who marketing and branding and yeah. Ian's face kind of describes that conversation. He's, now, he's very, very confused. There are many ways you can number Doctor Who. There is none of them that make that season season one. Where does that come from? Well, presumably, Tom Baker. there you go. There you go. And let's say this is a first in the line of uh, season Blu-ray releases. Then perhaps... They just thought, well, let's stick number one on the front for an American audience. But, but having said that, we've already had season one with Christopher Eccleston. Well, so, well that, here, that's series one. Yes. I don't know how they branded it in America. I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> but what would, you, what would you call an unearthly child? It's not season, I suppose. Season but minus... It was grouped together in a box set called The Beginning. So I think in America at the moment, you now have The Beginning box set, Season 1, Series 1. Anyway, sorry, we're getting off the point a little bit, but uh, it, it was good we'll, to spend... We'll get Pertwee's first season and we'll see what they can come up with for that. See if we can have yeah. some other way of saying a new beginning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Colour one. And what, was, what was the event like? So, I mean, you, it was introduced, you just watched, watched this omnibus edition of Genesis. Yep, yep, on the big screen, of course. It looked great. Obviously, they've upscaled it the best they can. You can tell that it was originally SD, but even on the big screen, it looked good. It did mm. look really good. Uh, being the omnibus version, though, there, there was no clam. Uh, no clam. We were, we were sorry the clam had gone. Why, why, why was the clam removed? Clam is a fundamental part of Genesis. I thought it was, but apparently not in the omnibus version, no. To cut down... That's sacrilege. You can't miss the clam. I mean, the clam's rubbish. We all know the clam is rubbish, <laughs> but we love the clam. Well, actually, I seem to remember the clam had been banned on the Twitch streaming version of it as well. I'm not sure. Ah. There, there was some controversial reason as to why. Maybe... I mean, does it look slightly suspicious, perhaps? I could not come into it. It's like a polystyrene clam, as I recall. <laughs> well, I, I think if we're looking at um, slightly suspicious objects, then there isn't anyone I already ought to discuss it more than you, Adam, because <laughs> they're d- double entendre and seeing things that aren't there are normally your specialism, aren't they? I, I've never got my foot stuck in a clam of any any description, <laughs> I'd say. But, <laughs> but what, was, um, what was the purpose of showing the Omnibus edition? Was it, was it just a case that that was the only thing that they had available? Or it was... Because uh, you said it was going to be a slightly different version on the actual release. Well... The rumour is, is, I'm not sure it's true, but uh, the version on the Blu-ray apparently is different to the version they showed at the BFI. The version they showed at the BFI may or may not, probably is the same as the one they've been showing in the States at the movie theatres. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it's all very unclear. 
Well, it, it's good that we're actually discussing something that affects fandom both sides of the ponds here, because mm. normally it's um, you, you, you have these strange initiatives. I think there's something you may have heard of it called San Diego Comic Con, oh, which is yeah. uh, which is set in America and spawns all manner of controversy if they get information that you don't get this side of the Show pond. Showing a trailer, worldwide, yeah. Well, there we are. Yeah. <laughs> it's the reason why I think perhaps we had that leak that we discussed last week, Ian. So, is the Blu-ray release also going to be an omnibus format, or will it have the option of the episodes? Both, yeah. So you oh, have okay. the, the individual episodes, should you wish, or you can watch the omnibus version. Hopefully, I, including the clam in the individual episodes. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure. sure. There better be a clam edit option. Yeah. I'll be, I'll be upset if there, if there isn't. Um, clam cut. <laughs> <laughs> Just to talk about the special features then that uh, appear mm. on the Blu-ray uh, edition. Um, they, they you you saw some? Yep, yep. The most notable stuff is they had some behind-the-scenes, behind-the-sofa, they called it, which they, I think they've done before with fans. They've now brought in some of the, the actors to, to re-watch the old shows and in Gogglebox style, as we know it in this country, watch it and react, as people do on YouTube. So we've got people like Tom Baker reacting to it... Uh, Sadie Miller, uh, Philip Hinchcliffe, uh, Janet Fielding, Sarah Sutton, who else do we have? Yeah, people like that, three on a sofa watching these old programs, and they, they show them in div- well, selected scenes uh, for them to react to, and they record that. And, uh, yeah, yeah, interesting, it's quite fun. I, I, I really dislike the idea of this. You're basically watching someone else watching television. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically yeah. what Saturday sports is these days <laughs> across the world. You're watching a bunch of guys watch football. At least in this case, it's people who are involved in the programme. For the most part, I can't remember anything about the production. Of course, it was 30, 40, whatever years ago. But it's interesting watching them react to themselves and the people they know, and particularly in Genesis. Obviously, a, a lot of the cast are dead now, sadly. So it was interesting to see their reactions to, to that, and yeah, it's yeah. nice. And it's cheap to produce, I would yeah. imagine as well. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. put people in a lounge yeah. or something. I, so I, I imagine Janet Fielding managed to have an opinion, even though she wasn't actually in the episode. Yeah, yeah. I don't quite know why Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton and what have you were brought in, but they were, and they were good entertainment value. I've got a slightly, slightly incongruous, given the um, actual material on the disc as well. It, I mean, it's, yeah, it's series twelve, Doctor Who. Well before they joined. <laughs> well, this is this, this is very strange. You see, you, I mean, we were discussing earlier on over dinner the the new approach to, to Doctor Who and how it's all meant to be professional and the marketing elements all meant to be lined up. Hence the reason yeah, you got oh. new uh, new logos and so on. Yeah. So why would you have, without any explanation, a couple of out of I don't know, as of continuum <laughs> is that <a> companions. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it's just a case of thinking, who can we get along to this? Maybe. For, for, for not very much money. Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Good. The Hinchcliffe interview, the Q&A at the end, was really good too. And as ever, the Radio Times has been getting a lot of mileage out of uh, recycling what he said in particular articles. Uh, he, he talked about how he didn't get to cast Tom, how he's glad he didn't get to cast Tom, the pressure that would, would have been. And uh, he also... Seemed a bit dismissive of uh, the era after him, uh, the Graham Williams era, uh, how he, he kept Tom under a tight rein, but obviously that didn't happen so much after he left. Uh, so interesting, his, his take on his successor. So he's been more candid than yeah. we've seen in other interviews, yeah. you think. Oh, I, yeah. wonder, I wonder what it is that's making, um, I don't know, alumni be a little more... Probably. Well, yeah. maybe that's what it is, yeah. yeah. I don't know, maybe, maybe they've been giving a mandate that they've got to start saying something that they haven't said yeah. once during the last 40 years. Yeah. And they're, they're only left with controversial material, perhaps. Yeah. Who or knows? he just doesn't care anymore. 
Perhaps. Well, it's always that, I suppose. Always yeah. that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, controversy gives you another circuit around the, tour, the conventions. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Also, I should quickly mention another special feature was was uh, Matthew Sweet interviewing Tom Baker, ah. which is really good. Uh, they actually Matthew Sweet actually managed to get into real person Tom Baker normally when you have Tom Baker up on stage he's doing a performance he's Absolutely. doing a bit of a, yeah. a comedy routine but here you actually get a sense of you know it's still an act but closer to the real Tom Baker I felt than mm. we've seen a lot of times well and you're right that that kind of real Tom is incredibly elusive in yeah. interviews and Matthew yeah. Sweets is probably one of the best interviewers I mm. think um, he was really good you know this this most recent generations have produced he's very very good as a journalist isn't he by trade yeah, I think, yeah, well, so. I think did. Yeah. yeah 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 okay well that's something to look forward to certainly so mm. Adam thank you very much spending just a few moments thank you. over your desserts <laughs> are you enjoying your desserts it's really really yummy and uh, not, not as filly as I expected really <laughs> <laughs> that's mainly because it's invisible anyway Adam Ian thanks for joining me back over the ponds to Brent and Drew Thanks again to our UK team, James and Ian, and special guest Adam J. Purcell of Staggering Stories, which is a really popular podcast, so that was a great surprise. And yes, guys, the Blu-ray set does have the clam cut of Genesis of the Daleks. <laughs> uh, Drew, they were talking in that segment about a show called Gogglebox, and I remember seeing that on TV when we were over in England earlier this year. It's basically a reality show where you're watching people sitting on their couch watching TV shows. You're watching someone watch TV, which sounds ridiculous, but it's really popular over there. Yeah. Well, um, Brent, you and I have recorded several running commentaries for <laughs> for Doctor Who episodes. I imagine it's just the visual equivalent of that. And, and I like that sort of... I mean, think about YouTube. We've become so much more of a... You're going to need to edit this just a little bit. I'm trying to think. Um, ah, we've become so much more of a kind of a voyeuristic society, mm-hmm. uh, I think, because of the way technology and the Internet works. It doesn't surprise me in the least that something like that becomes super popular. It's not 17 hours of watching a train drive through the snow, <laughs> but uh, no, I'd give it a shot. Well, as we steal a lot of their shows over there, I'm sure we'll have it over here in some form or another soon. Uh <laughs> And something very special that we didn't get over here, which was a Q&A session with writer and producer Philip Hinchcliffe. So I'm sure that was very entertaining to hear some of those stories. Oh, I bet. Hell oh, yeah. I bet. And speaking of writers, up next is our feature interview with one of the hosts of a podcast all about writers, Eric Stadnick. Our guest this month has been a familiar voice since I first discovered Doctor Who podcasts, and indeed, podcasting in general, seven years ago. He's co-host of the first iteration of the Doctor Who Book Club and is currently the co-host of the Classic Horrorcast and Doctor Who The Writer's Room, a podcast that Paul Cornell listed as one of his favorites in an issue of Doctor Who magazine. Eric Stadnick, welcome to Who & Company. Wow, thank you so much for having me. Is that, did Paul actually say that? He did, yeah. I, I think I'd forgotten that. Um, I'm sure I remembered it at some point, but I'm, I completely forgot that. I, 
I was like, oh, well, wow, that's kind of him. But yes, hello, nice to be here. Thank <laughs> you for having me. So uh, you're in Prague. I am indeed, Prague, Czech Republic. How's Prague? Uh, Prague is a beautiful city. It's actually quite nice. It's actually, we're in a bit, I won't say heat wave, but it's certainly in a warm period. It is summer, so that's not that surprising. But it's, you know, been high 80s Fahrenheit, if you use Fahrenheit. We don't here. We use Celsius, of course. It's been, been 27, 28. That's, mm. that's getting pretty warm. That's getting pretty toasty. <laughs> and most places here don't have air conditioning, so it's a lot of people leaning out their windows trying to catch some fresh air. <laughs> Was the, uh, the, did you, I'm assuming that in, while in the United States, you didn't use Celsius and you used Fahrenheit like the rest of us barbarians. Mm-hmm. Um, is it an easy thing to adjust to uh, that change? I think it's easy, actually, if you make the conscious decision to do so. It's it's one of those things that I think a lot of American uh, expats just, they just never try, I don't think, honestly. Um, but if you do, because it's actually not that difficult, there's a... There's a quick and dirty conversion, and then there's the more complicated. But, you know, essentially, you just need to kind of know a range. It's like, oh, it's above, like, 23. Oh, that's quite warm. Oh, it's 20? Oh, that's a nice, like, spring-like kind of nice day. Let's go outside. Oh, it's, like, below 10? That's not so nice. That's, that's cold. <laughs> Let's stay inside. And then zero, of course, is freezing. And so you kind of have a better sense. Like, it's really all you need to know is, like, a broad range. But the number of people who will be here for five months and i'll say oh it's gonna be like 27 on saturday they'll be like i don't know what like hot cold what is that sure what does that mean yeah well i think like anybody else uh when they they kind of gave a celsius in school unless you are specifically studying like the sciences like in college uh, Mm -hmm. it's it's like any language that if you studying spanish in high school is fine but if you're not immersed in it and if no one is talking at it outside of that classroom for 45 minutes it's very difficult to retain, at least for me. But I was also a, just a garbage student, so. Uh. No, but that, that's, that's uh, maybe you were, maybe you weren't. I wasn't there at the time. But as someone who is a professional language teacher, I can guarantee you that, yes, that, like most of my students, I tell them again and again, like if what you do is you come and you sit with me for an hour or even 90 minutes once a week and you speak English and then you go home and the rest of your life is in check, you're never going to get better, and in fact, you will slowly decline. Like that is not enough practice to maintain any sort of any sort of skill, any sort of way of thinking. Needs you really need to be doing it, especially once you're an adult. It has to be pretty consistent, and you have to be really using that skill, or else it just atrophies and dies. How's your check coming along? Oh, very poorly. Uh, I, you know, I'm picking up words here and there, and there are things that can say very basic things. Um, but like, I have trouble with numbers. So like, I can say two, three, and I can, I know the word for four, but it's very hard to pronounce. So, but I forget what one is. So it's like the problem sometimes. Um, but, uh, and, but I, I am trying, uh, and there are like lots of classes and lessons and things but they're usually happening at the same time when i'm working and so i'm not able to attend those um and so it's mainly just apps and and whatnot but i am you know you do passively absorb and and i make a point when i see a sign anywhere and i have a moment i will stop and i'll read it and try to get as many words out of it as possible uh czech is a notoriously complicated language you know not compared to something like you know mandarin maybe 
because um, it does use the Roman alphabet, although it has different letters sometimes. But it does have uh, it does have case endings. So like uh, my name, Eric, is different if you're talking about Eric is doing a thing or someone is doing something to Eric. It gets a different ending. Oh, wow. To know whether you're the object or the subject of the action. And there's seven cases, six cases, and each one has a different ending. Plus there's masculine, feminine, and neuter. So there's like just tons of endings. And and that can make it quite quite complicated. Have you Was, uh, have you attempted to drive over there yet? I don't drive anywhere. Oh, <laughs> I've never learned. I don't have a license, uh, so no. But uh, but by all accounts, it looks quite simple here. The traffic laws that I can see uh, seem to be quite similar to those in America. They you know drive on the same side of the road. Only the Brits and a few other weird island countries drive on the left. Um, the main difference that I can tell <laughs> is that here stoplights turn yellow both before and after turning red. So oh. yellow is like it always means transition. That's what gotcha. that's what it is in England also. I noticed that when we went to okay. London. Yeah, that was pretty yeah. neat. Yeah, so it's sort of yellow. If you see yellow, it means sort of like be cautious. Like if, if, if cars aren't moving and you see yellow, it's like they're about to move. If you are moving and it turns yellow, it means okay, you're about to have to stop. So that's interesting. That gives you a, a kind of a signal for awareness to be a little bit yeah. more understanding of your surroundings. Yeah, Neat. yeah. But otherwise, like people turn right on red. You know, it's all, it's all pretty basic looking. There's nothing. There's nothing weird going on. I've been in cars, obviously, here, and and it's not like oh my god, what what strange rules you have. No, <laughs> it's pretty standard. When I lived in India, there were no street lights. And so people yes. just drove and, uh, you know, they didn't have – there wasn't much even in the way of signal lights. Everyone used their horn for everything. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was fun. It was almost like swimming uh, in the middle of a river where people are going both upstream and downstream at the same time. And then, you know, cows uh, are there. Lots of cows. Yeah. So. Very few cows in the streets of Prague. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Doctor Who, you know, that subject that kind of brings us all together in one form or another. Uh, Eric, how are you? And I don't think I've ever, we don't think we've ever talked about this before, but how are you introduced to Doctor Who? I, um, so my my Who story, as it were, is uh, kind of in two discrete parts. Um, when I was growing up, my parents would, not religiously, I don't think, but would at least sometimes watch... Uh, Doctor Who and PBS. So this would be the early 80s. And at the time, what PBS was almost invariably showing was Tom Baker uh, classic stories. So, um, um, you know, my parents will still, like, ask about, like, the scarf one or whatever. Um, and and I had a memory, a sort of vestigial memory, that, I like, I remember having as a child of having watched this story of one man who was different men, but he was the same man, like, wandering around, like, an old, like, spooky castle and, like, it being a big deal. And only when I became a modern doctor, I was like, oh, I must have seen The Five Doctors. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And, like, my little child brain was like, oh, it's... 
it's like a haunted house because it's kind of haunted housey feeling and i've always liked that sort of thing and so i think my brain sort of made it more haunted housey than it was but it but very distinctly had this idea that it was one man but he looked different and he was all there at the same time and that was a big deal in this sort of castle setting and then you hear that and like well that's the five doctors so i probably saw that in 1983 or whatever and so i was always aware of doctor who and i would have various actually friends of my mom's actually would be like oh do you are you so are you a whovian when i was like 12 and i was like no i am not i i did comic books and stuff but doctor who was not easily accessed uh like it, well, it wasn't on tv where i was and so it would have been a giant pain to try to watch and I never thought of myself as a sci-fi person. In fact, I still don't think of myself as a sci-fi person. So the idea of watching Doctor Who was sort of meh. I did watch the McGann movie for reasons I really don't fully understand. Um, <laughs> like when it aired, I made the decision that night, this is what I'm watching on television. And I did. Uh, and I recall thinking, fine, sure, whatever. Um, but then flash forward to, let's say, 2006, probably. Um, when I'm flipping through the stations one night and a friend and I are watching TV and SNL was not very funny or it entered like the second half hour where it was sort of like, maybe it was a musical guest. I always hated musical guests on SNL. And we're flipping through. And I had seen previously that on Saturday night, late night, this is after I'd moved to Washington, D.C., one of the local stations played like classic Doctor Who stories. I remember at least once seeing a black and white story. So they probably were playing either Hartnell or, or uh, Trouton stories. But anyway, flew through one night, and there was this thing on PBS. And PBS shows tend to have certain looks, you know? Right. Like things that are on PBS look a certain way. And there's this thing, and it immediately looked different. And I was like, it's like futuristic, and it's weird. What, and it looks kind of glossy. I'm like, what is this? And then a few minutes in, they start talking about things, and and someone refers to this man as the Doctor, and I'm like, oh my, I'm like, I think this is they made Doctor Who again. I was, it was, and it was the end of the world, the second episode of the revived season. And I remember as soon as uh, the iPod, which was actually a jukebox, uh, played "Toxic" by Britney Spears, I was like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> I'm totally in. I'm 100% in. Um, and sort of that, the sort of timing coincided very nicely with uh, a roommate who I was very good friends with. He ended up moving, he was moving out uh, to move with his girlfriend. And so I suddenly had all this, all this hangout time became all this hangout alone time. And I was like, well, phew, here we go. And I just went straight deep dive in both with New Who and Classic Who. And so it sort of consumed them both in mass quantities and within six months was caught up to everything that had been released on DVD as on Netflix. So what you're saying is that Britney Spears was the impetus for you to watch Doctor Who? <laughs> a, Britney, a combination of my parents, Britney Spears, and our local PBS stations. Yes. That may be a fairly unique origin story for Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. I think it probably is, yeah. I think it probably is. So do you have a favorite Doctor, or has that changed over the years? or? Um, I would, you know, I think, I think, you know, there's always that, oh, I like the one I'm watching is my favorite. And there, there is some, there is some truth to that statement that I didn't mean to make it sound quite so cletusy. <laughs> um, but, but like in my heart of hearts, since I saw more than like two or three of his stories, uh, Hartnell has been my favorite. I am 
absolutely mad for the Hartnell Doctor. I think he is just a fascinating, fascinating performer in the role. Um, and I think we, I think we consistently undervalue and underestimate how difficult it was for him to strike that very to to create something that we recognize as doctorishness right um and and he did it um he didn't start there <laughs> like he starts sure. slightly somewhere else um but he gets there pretty quickly um and and the 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 vibe and the tone and sort of he's just always fascinating to watch and he's just really interesting and he gets um and he gets such an interesting arc uh, arc is not quite the right word because i don't mean it that way but such an interesting series of companions to interact with and a bunch of different relationships to play. Um, and, you know, there, there are others that I like almost as much and there are others that I sort of never really sort of click with, but um, in my heart of hearts, it's always, it's always Billy. It's always Billy. Um, and because you are someone who certainly pays a lot of attention to the scripts uh, for these mm. stories, do you think that some of what you appreciate from Hartnell is the fact that the scripts were the scripts along with the actor were kind of finding their feet and so there isn't a quote unquote Doctor Who formula yet and so they're both creating and breaking a certain trend while while making this this 3 years of Hartnell's run yeah, I think there's actually something, I think there's something very smart in that. I think the idea that he, you know, we often think about the other Doctors and they have their kind of, the house style for each, you know. Troughton, they essentially, well, Troughton, it sort of bounces around, but Troughton is monsters, running running away from monsters. And and then, you know, Pertwee has the unit thing. And, like, and they all kind of do kind of the same thing to one extent or another. Whereas Hartnell, literally from week to week, it was the show that could do anything. And right. and I think it's actually really interesting how much that got forgotten. And then every once in a while, like a, a producer will kind of remember, oh, this show can do anything. We can do we can do Warrior's Gate. Like there's nothing telling us we can't do uh, enlightenment, you know, like and some of the best moments in Doctor Who come when sort of the writers, the producers, script editors cast aside the very formulaic and say no, this is Doctor Who. There are literally no rules. Like We get to do what we want. And they, because they hadn't written them down yet in the Hartnell years, everything was sort of new and different. Is there one story in particular that really resonates with you that you, that you find yourself going back to uh, in that era? In the Hartnell era? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I There are, there are a couple. I would say... Um, the Aztecs is definitely one that when I think about, I think of just how well constructed it is and how, how, how serious minded it is that Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's not just, Ooh, let's have a bit of fun. It's like really explores the fundamental question of what it, what it would mean to have a time travel if it went to the past. Um, Einstein famously, I think it was Einstein. Don't quote me. I'm pretty sure it's Einstein. Famously said that, if time travel were possible, you could only ever move forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you could never change past events. And so, you know, there's Lucarati and the original production team going, well, what can you change the past? And and the show is still trying to grapple with that fundamental question. And the way 
the way that story resolves it and the way the relationships work and how much it becomes about the relationships between the people. And, you know, it's not about beating the bad guy. Like, there is a bad guy, kind of, with the, the, the other priest who's never forgotten. But it's about the Doctor and Barbara. It's about uh, Barbara and Outlock. It's about the Doctor and Kameka. It's about these relationships. And it's like, I think that's just something really beautiful. Um, and then, you know, I will I will admit to, I sometimes like a bit of uh, Goofy Hartnell because I think he's really funny. So both the Romans and the gunfighters get a pretty heavy rotation <laughs> for me. I think I think when he's doing comedy, he's just he's precious. He's absolutely precious at comedy, um, and both of those really show him off. It kind of depends on whether I want Vicky, Barbara, and Ian alongside, or whether I want Stephen and Dodo alongside. Right. Uh, but even Dodo is great in the Gunfighters, so it doesn't like they're they're both comedy gold as far as I'm concerned, and sure. they both have kind of similar endings in some way yeah i mean outside of the first episode the unearthly child if i'm feeling the that itch for hartnell it's always going to be aztecs and the romans for me and it just again Mm -hmm. kind of depends if i want to have it on if i just want to have it on like playing in the background i'll watch the romans you know because there's there's some intensely serious moments in there but also it's just Mm -hmm. you can tell with both the romans and the gunfires that hartnell himself as an actor is having a lot of fun he's enjoying he's enjoying being a part of that performance in that production but if i want to sit down and watch it i'll I'll put on the aztecs and aztecs is one of those shows where uh when those stories where if i'm i can't watch it all the time it's so good I have mm-hmm. to parse it out because, like, I've maybe watched it three times, and the first time I saw it, that was what told me I could watch Classic Who. I watched The Five mm-hmm. Doctors or tried to watch The Five Doctors before I went back <laughs> and watched the entire run and went, I can't watch this. I don't get it. I'm not appreciating it in the way a, a fan should. Uh, and so I went and watched Unearthly Child, and that first episode was good, and I watched what was available to me, which was not much in that, that first season uh, initially because I just – didn't have the money to fork over for those expensive dvds but when i got the aztecs i'm like nope yeah cool i'm gen i'm not pretending i'm an actual fan like this i like this is this is the this is the yeah. real deal yeah it's also like it's it's you know it's uh, to say it's to say it's doctor who's first tragedy is a bit of an ex- extreme it's not quite a tragedy but it's it, it it's it's ineffably sad Mm-hmm. The way it ends and sort of the fact that Barbara attempts to do this thing. So it's it's about like colonization and like coming in and thinking you know better and the fact that that's never going to work. But also at the same time, the, you know, having destroyed Otlock's faith, but maybe opened his eyes. And is that good or is that bad? Like, should he have been left to live in ignorance? But uh, it's just and then leaving Kameka and the doctor picking up the stupid like brooch or bracelet that she, she gives him. Like, he sets it down, and then he's like, and he gets all fusty, and he takes it. And he's like, somewhere in the Doctor's heart, somewhere still in the Doctor's heart, there's a little space for Kameka from the Aztecs. And I, yeah. It's it's beautiful, but it is, it, it, yeah, right, it's not it's not like Ula Tava rollicking adventure. Mm-hmm. Eric, uh, how did you go from being a fan to being a podcaster? That's actually Radio Free Scaro's fault. Um, <laughs> I... Um, the first podcasts I listened to were were Doctor Who podcasts, or they were among the first. Um, I was a fairly early adopter of, of podcasts. 
like I was listening to podcasts in like 2008 um, when some of the big ones were just getting started. And um, and Radio Fuscaro was was going or was, you know, somewhere around that time. And, and must have been 2009. I know for a fact 2009 because it just popped up in my Facebook feed recently. 2009, um, Torchwood Miracle Day. Not not Miracle Day. Torchwood Children of Earth aired. Not Miracle Day. Yes. Children of Earth <laughs> um, aired. And there was, if you remember, a great hue and cry from certain segments um, of the fan community over the death of Yonto Jones. Uh, spoilers. Um, and, and RFS at the time did these things called Wednesday Cutaways which were sort of uh, extra episodes that they'd release on Wednesdays. And they thought it would be a good idea to sort of address one of these Wednesday episodes towards the Yanto controversy. Because, I mean, there were people making death threats against the writers and accusing RTD of homophobia, which, oh my God, have you met the man? <laughs> um, I mean, just like really ridiculous things. Mind you, often from people who were not necessarily members of the queer community, but, you know. That's, that's 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 a separate question um uh and and so they uh so the rfs guys thought we should do a thing on this but being three straight white guys in at the time their 30s now their 40s uh they thought maybe we're not the best people to talk about this and so essentially they kind of like scanned their listener base people they had interacted with like on Twitter and stuff and thought maybe we can put together a sort of guest panel. And so Kat, uh, now of the Verity podcast, and uh, Nat from Nottingham, uh, who ended up along with Kat and I being hosts of the Bridging Rift, Rift podcast, were asked to kind of come in and have this conversation. And, and we did. Um, and from them, it sort of became, I think I guested... I think I guested once on my new Doctor Who podcast when he was doing like Doctor Who Mastermind. I think I guested on that once. Um, but then mainly it was Bridging the Rift. Kat and Nat had gotten along so well they decided they should do like uh, a podcast about like fan things, fan creativity. Um, and I think they sort of amongst themselves decided they did a couple episodes and they kind of and then they had me on as a guest and i think they realized actually it's be better when eric's here uh so even though not really my strong point uh like fan creativity i've never been like that invested in that community um i was brought in and so yeah so it's sort of all circuitous but that shortly led to uh doctor who book club which was sort of like the one that i did for the longest time and the most consistently yeah. That's very cool. So that's how. Yeah. I, I mean, you've been a part of several podcasts, and it, it seems like you haven't been what would be considered like the straightforward roundtable version of, of a podcast. You've always seemed to come in from uh, kind of a, a different direction. Uh, when you decide to be a part of either being something that you create or guest on, what informs your decisions on to, to how to whether or not to take part in it or create it? Um, it's in, I've not created anything. Actually, the only thing I've kind of created is Classic Horror Cast, which I didn't create so much as just say to Kyle, who I had a show with, and Sean, who I had a show with, and who I both knew loved horror movies as much as I did, I kind of said, maybe we should all do a horror movie show? 
Um, <laughs> I think probably in that tone of voice. But I generally just, um, you know, this is going to sound very pompous, but it's just there's no better words. I'm not a pontificator. I'm not an opinion giver. I am a critic. Right. Um, and so if if the if the if the show is come along and you know talk about the thing that just happened sort of as an immediate reaction i mean i've done that but usually because i have been in the place when something has happened um like i've uh, at least once guested on radio free scarrow from like chicago tardis i think because i was at chicago tardis with steven um but generally speaking what appeals to me is the idea of being able to have some amount of cool distance from the thing being discussed. I am not, um, and 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 and, I, and I'll, I'll I'll break it down even further. There are multiple kinds of critics. There are like TV or movie critics who like you know do like reviews weekly of new things or whatever, and then there are the kind who like ten years later write a book reassessing. Mm. I'm the ten year later reassessor. Gotcha. Like that, that is my thing. And so if there's a way for me to do that on somebody's show, I'm always there. If it is come on and just talk about, you know, the latest episode, like I'm always really hesitant to do that. Like I've done it, but I'm always sort of like, why me? Like, what yeah. do I, is, do I bring something? Uh, it, it, do you need my voice for some reason? Or is it just sort of like, I'm just another person? Because, I mean, there are a million dudes out there, and not nearly enough, but still quite a few women now out there giving immediate reactions to episodes as they air or news from Comic-Con as it breaks or whatever. It's like, can I contribute anything or should I stick to my lane? So I tend to stick to my lane. I And I get that and I appreciate it. Um, you wrote a piece for the Queers Dig Time Lords that, uh, had I a, did. I had a, you did, uh, and had a phrase in there that has greatly um, changed how I look at podcasting uh, from a personal perspective. Which is hmm. essentially, uh, is my voice necessary? Am I going to yes. contribute something different? How do how is my voice going to help that field? And if if it's not, yeah. I've I've not done it. Um, you know, before it was. I need to be on as many podcasts as possible so that people will take me seriously as a podcaster. And then I read that, your piece, and went, ah, I get it. Uh, unless, I'm, <laughs> unless I'm doing something that is unique uh, or the fact that I'm on it will open up a, a, an avenue that other people who might not have otherwise have listened to a podcast might do it like some you know there's there's availability but there's also a certain quality to it i've stopped uh i used to do any podcast i could be on and, and i've i've held off from that because i feel like um well i do have a voice i can find that voice on many other podcasts and so i i i've i've held off from that so thank you you're welcome. It's funny that you. It's funny that you mentioned that in that context because it's. It, it wasn't meant to be like a don't, but it was meant to be like a find what you can contribute. Um, and when because uh, that book was essentially my idea. I mean, not only, but I was the one who pitched the book mm -hmm. to the publisher, and he said, and and you know, he he was going for it. And he's like, so do you want to edit it? 
And I said, oh, God, no. I don't I don't know how to edit. Like, I, I can't know. <laughs> like, you know, I had, I, I had gotten as far as I did because, you know, uh, Chip from Truman Time Lord had been, like, sort of pushing me and, and Deb from Verity, who um, had sort of arranged everything and uh, who had done several books with, with the publisher. And, but I knew what kind of work went into sort of, like, editing you know, getting 20 people to commit to essays and having them come in and editing them in format. Like, I was like, nope. I'm like, I will write one happily. Um, but the, this, I'm, this is just an idea I think you should do. Yeah. Um, and, and I think I, I, I'm not making it out to be a virtue. It could be my, I'm a moral coward of some kind, but I think, I think a lot of people in that position would have been like, yes, of course I'm editing. I'm the editor. And, it's my name's on the cover. I'm the editor. It's my book. It's, of course, you know, this would have gone for it because it would be about them. And for me, it's about the project. Yeah. Having just been that guy with the the name uh, on the cover for editing, uh, I just, I was asked, I contributed some ideas to um, the Children of Time anthology, which is a charity anthology, which is something I really, I could appreciate uh, the fact that it wasn't, mm-hmm. It wasn't just a book that was going to be on a shelf. It was there for a reason, and it was bringing in fans. And I was asked, would you like to be a co-editor? And I was like, yes, I would. I'd like to have my name on the cover. Uh, I didn't realize the name was going to be as big as it was. Um, and <laughs> once the project got started, I, by the time I joined in, there was only about six weeks before it, the deadline was due, which is something that... Um, were I to edit a book in the future, and I would like to because it's an interesting process, I'm certainly going to need much more time than that. Uh, But I can absolutely appreciate your standpoint and backing away and just being a contributor to that, your idea or no. Yeah, I think if if someone approached me now and said, hey, we want to do, and they said an idea that was totally in my wheelhouse, Mm-hmm. I would be like, yeah, I could give you either an entire book on my own or I could edit that with other contributors. But the thing is, at the time and even now, I'm just not super in touch with a large chunks of the queer community in Doctor Who. And so I was like, I'm just not qualified for this. Like, this is like the work would be insane. And I really wouldn't begin have the first clue about how to go about doing it. Now I would be less concerned about the work. But that that like authentic authenticity still would matter to me. So. Yeah. You had mentioned just moments ago uh, that you were the kind of person who, you know, 10 years down the line might do a review. Um, is that something mm-hmm. that is sort of on your bucket list to, as someone who appreciates writing and is very good at recognizing and critiquing it, would you consider writing your own critique, particularly of Doctor Who or even any anything along those lines? Well, I've I've done a, a number of years ago. I did a couple years worth of sort of um, sort of blogging projects. One about the Odyssey, one about War and Peace, and a sort of half finished one about Jane Austen, um, where I sort of went through the books slowly and and, and wrote about them and, and attempted to do some sort of meld of popular popular analysis and critical focus. Um, and I think some days. Someday, when I actually put my mind to it and decide to focus on that instead of doing whatever else I might be doing, um, those will start to come out. I think it. I think it would be super interesting to try to do something with Kyle, for example, where we bookalized, essayified uh, 
our thoughts on the scripts for for classic coup but i think it's just one of those um this is where sort of the fact that i worked in business for a long time comes in and it says who would buy that right and does it need to exist when there are so many uh high quality low quality medium quality like like what would we actually contribute aside from the name like from the hosts of i'm like that's not really much of anything so maybe not that um but if but definitely if i i i really enjoy writing myself i I really enjoy writing when i get to sort of analyze and sort of look at all the references and try to you know uh go deep do deep dives into text and things that sort of that sort of genuinely just makes me happy that sort of writing so if I found the right project, I would happily do it and then try to find a way to publish it. Like I would do it first. Um, there have been a couple aborted attempts here and there um, over the years. Um, nothing recently, um, but yeah. So uh, yeah, maybe I don't know. If Kyle listens, this might be the first time he thinks that I think we should novelize or not novelize, but that we should bookify our our podcast. But I think <laughs> we've mentioned it at least once. Yeah. Um, what about the? I don't. The Black Archives. I'm not sure familiar with that that publishing. Mm. Um, there's there's a deep dark. Like one of my favorite things to listen is to you talk about both Ghostlight and Battlefield. Um, <laughs> and like if anybody uh, could write a a uh, one of the Black Archives uh, books, uh, certainly if those either of those become available, I, I certainly would love to hear your interpretations and thoughts on those. Yeah, no, it's funny. I know some people who have written some of those. Um, yeah. And um, my understand, I don't, I don't, I'm not super familiar with like how they happen, but my understanding, at least for right now, is that it's all new, who, right? No, there's there's classic stuff too. Well, there is classic stuff too. Then I have no idea what my excuse is. <laughs> I think par- I think I, this is the thing. I think partly it's just I'm not I'm not a putting myself forward kind of guy. Ah, um, I'm not, and that may sound funny because I know I sound super arrogant. But I am not, I'm just not a sort of like, hi, you don't know me, but I just don't do that ever. So, so since I don't know who's doing these books, and since I don't, as a rule, publish my thoughts on Doctor Who, except for in podcast form, like I don't do a blog about Doctor Who, and I never have done a blog about Doctor Who, my thoughts about Doctor Who don't get out there very often, except through the podcast, right? which limits the sort of scope of those who will hear them so i mean maybe like seriously if like if the people who do the black archives like oh hey battlefield i would i would i would love to do some battlefield i would love to do ghostlight i would love to do any of the mccoy stuff or any of 15 other stories i would love to sink my teeth into but i'm i'm just not the kind of person who's ever going to like google black archive publisher and like then send off an email just it's just not me well, uh, I'll send you the link uh, because I, <laughs> I have. I'm just letting you know that uh, Paradise Towers is off limits. I call dibs on that. Uh, or you or, can have it. Or Doctor Mysterio. <laughs> those are, those are the two that I've written outlines for. <laughs> we Doctor Mysterio. Yes. Hachi machi. <clears throat> I mean, I liked it more than most people, but still, yikes. No. Um. Is is as a uh, dive on. Into the uh, the comic book genre, so how does Doctor Who take uh, explain the um, origin stories of superheroes? And there's a lot to look at for both uh, 
where where he is taking inspiration from for that episode. So a good juxtaposition between the Doctor Who mythology and the traditional and modern uh, comic book mythology. There's there's some really interesting points that Moffat has done with that, and I think. Uh, I haven't read any of the Black Archives. I'm a, I'm about to. Uh, hopefully, our August guest will have a lot more to say about that. But um, <laughs> we'll. It's just something that I, I like to think about, and so that's that's where we're going with that. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite podcasts is Doctor Who: The Writers' Room, which you co-host with Kyle Anderson. And Indeed. It's almost reached its run of classic episodes. So, is that mm-hmm. podcast coming to an end, or do you have something else planned for it? Um, I'll say this: it's the end, but the moment has been prepared for. <laughs> like we are well aware of where we are in the calendar. Uh, we have plans that we'll be announcing quite soon. I I hope people will stay with us as we sort of do a little bit of morphing um but yeah but no he and i really really enjoy podcasting together i mean we do two podcasts a month together um if we had an idea we could probably do three um and and i think we it's you know ages ago when we first started talking about well what do we do when this ends it, it was never the question of like, okay, well, that will be the end. It was always like, well, what do we do? What will we want to do? What will our listeners enjoy hearing us do? Uh, what will be something that will keep us engaged so that we maintain it and it doesn't sort of fizzle out? Um, so, yeah. But, no, we have – we definitely have plans. Oh, cool. Because I, I was, I was kind of curious because since so much of your – your podcasting for that particular show is emphasizing the story script, you know, rather than visual mm-hmm. interpretation. I was just kind of wondering, you know, if they discover another um, lost episode, like, would you be willing to kind of go back and re-review that story? Like, I mean, because you've you've you're going to have covered everything, you know, whether or not yes. you could have watched it or not. But mm-hmm. especially on your most recent podcast, where you're talking about Enemy of the World. You discussed what it was like to like listen to the just the audio versus being able to watch it in its mm-hmm. entirety, and I'm just wondering if they rediscovered something. Uh, let's say, fingers crossed for Macrotera. Um, if mm. if they did that, would you be going? Well, because you, you know I know that you're looking at the script, and the script hasn't changed. But no, would, no, you wouldn't. Well, no, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. No, the script hasn't changed. Um, I don't know. I think we would definitely play it by ear because we. We talked about this question, or Kyle and I did talk about this question, because Web of Fear was rediscovered after we'd covered it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we said, should we go back? And we both had been so disappointed by that story, and neither one of us had found anything in the you know recovered footage to make us change our opinion about the general sort of madness of the story. We're like, no, why go back and just say, yeah, no, it's still not that interesting. Gotcha. Like that, um, that seems, that that would just be cruel somehow. Uh, if they like found, yeah, Macro Tower or, or Macro Terror or Toymaker, and it was like, oh my God, it's amazing in a way that the script never indicates. Uh, maybe, 
because uh, then I mean one of the mo- one of the interesting conversations you can have is how the script is often let down by a show or off or maybe in this case it would be improved by it which mm. is an interesting thing um, but my guess is we would not feel compelled to to be like oh we should go back and do this again we are uh, we do have a little bit of plan for re I won't say anything more because I don't think we've announced it but we mm. do have a little bit of plan before we leave Doctor Who uh, the writer's room technically uh, behind we do have a little bit of revisiting we're gonna do but that's just that's just mainly for our own sakes do you have any other podcast projects that are coming up besides that that uh, you might could share with us um well we have the classic horror cast which is ongoing although although kind of sporadic because it's just difficult to get the three of us to schedule together um but now those are the two those are the two it's uh, I had thought for a long time about doing this or doing that, um, but now that I'm in Prague and sort of my job has completely changed and and how I work has changed and when I work has changed and being minimum of five, you know, well, actually, I'm only an hour ahead of Britain, so if I had like a British co-host, maybe, but generally hours and hours ahead of anyone I know in America, it's um, it becomes much harder to say, hey, let's start a podcast. Um, I'm not saying it wouldn't happen. I'm just saying I'm kind of content with what I have for now, I think. Chin up, Hamlet. Chin up, Hamlet. Buck up, you melancholy dine. So your uncle is a cad who murdered dad and married mum. That's really no excuse to be as glum as you've become. So wise up, Hamlet. Rise up, Hamlet. Park up and sing a new refrain. Your incessant monologizing fills the castle with ennui. Your antic disposition is embarrassing to see. And by the way, your sulky brat, the answer is to be. You're driving poor Ophelia insane. So shut you rogue and peasant. Grow up, it's most unpleasant. Cheer up, you melancholy Well, Eric, whenever we have a guest on... Um, we ask them to look at a, a television show that is not Doctor Who because we know that Doctor Who is not the end-all and be-all of their fandom. So could you tell us what show you have selected and tell us why you selected it? I sure can. I selected the Canadian television series Slings and Arrows. <clears throat> and I selected it because it is awesome. <laughs> <clears throat> That's that's it. Now I selected it. I selected it because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a theatrical guy in the sense that I like going to theater, um, and it is one of the few filmed media I've ever seen of any kind, movies or television, that at moments captures that that feeling of what happens when you're in a live theater seeing something amazing. Hmm. I don't I don't know exactly the perfect alchemy, and I've I've poked apart some of the elements that they contribute. Tinkly music helps, um, but they there's a, there's a something they do that really, really just it's transportive in a way that is that's really amazing. And on top of that, it's it's funny. It doesn't take itself too seriously, even though it's dealing with very serious things. It's it's just it's just legitimately uh, an amazing an amazing little series. When did you first discover the show? When did you first start watching it? 
Oh, uh, it probably was about 2010 or 11. Um, it aired in Canada 2003 2006. And then um, in America, I think it one or two years later but i saw it on netflix but i saw it because john dickerson of uh, uh cbs this morning and uh formerly uh actually still currently on uh the slate political Gabfest, longtime political journalist in dc he recommended it on a podcast years and years ago i think he recommended it actually more than once and he talked about how just how amazing it was and how unlike anything else on TV. And it was this idea of this sort of like, is this, this group of Shakespeareans trying to put on a festival. Um, and I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And as soon as I started watching it, I was immediately just utterly enamored um, with every part of it, even the parts of it that are like super duper Canadian. Um, and, and I, yeah, yeah. So I discovered it and immediately fell in love and it was, only, it's only three series I think I watched them all within a matter of like a week or two, and I've rewatched them several times since. Um, but yeah, that's fantastic. Could you describe exactly what you mean by super duper Canadian? So, uh, so there's a variety of things that make it super duper Canadian. Uh, one is a young Rachel McAdams and uh-huh. uh, getting her getting one of her first big roles. Um, but I mean, the lead actress in the show, who is also the lead actress like the star actress of the Shakespeare Festival, festival has the most Canadian sorry you have ever heard. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. Everyone. I guess I just, sorry, everyone. And she says sorry 10 times an episode. Sorry. Because it's like, it's like her catchphrase. Mm-hmm. Is she just does things wrong. And then she says, sorry, sorry, I'm late. Sorry, sorry, everyone. And I'm not even doing it. It is so strong. It is so Canadian. Uh, and it's really, it's really great. And I mean, it, it's it's written by and co-starring a kid in the hall in Mark McKinney. Uh, it's just, it's really Canadian. This is the only show I think I've ever seen um, that I can think of, uh, all about behind the scenes of running a local theater and the actors and mm-hmm. the director directors and how they all interact. And uh, it was really different to see something like that. Yeah, I've seen television shows that um, that talk about being behind the scenes for TV, you know, most notably 30 Rock. Uh, but I don't think I've ever seen anything that focused specifically on, on theater in general. Eric, are you a, you said that you enjoy going to theater, but do you have any kind of a theater background? No, none whatsoever. Um, so not even a high school musical? No, I think that hesitation to put myself forward, uh, which I mentioned earlier, really prevented me from doing anything. It, it I mean, it's completely bonkers to... Yeah, I've never stood on stage singing uh, You Are 17 going on, you know, I've no, <laughs> never done it. Um, and that seems, I think, for people who know me, kind of bonkers. But um, but yeah, the whole idea of having to audition and do that, like, I I don't have stage fright. I've, I've been on stage in a variety of ways. I've done a little bit of, a very little bit of improv here and there. And, and you know, and I teach, which is also a certain amount of performance. Um, but the... But yeah, no, so no theatrical background whatsoever, just always sort of an admirer from afar, both of of all elements of it, from from people who do stagecraft and the amazing effects they can create, to stage acting, to writing for the stage and directing. Um, 
it's actually much my appreciation for the stage is actually very different from my appreciation for something like Doctor Who, mm-hmm. which is kind of heavily focused on not exclusively on writers, but heavily on writers. Whereas stage work, because I have a because I know that when you're a stage actor, you're out on you're out there on your own. I give them much, much, much more credit for their performances than I do screen actors, which is maybe awful, but No, I true. think it's I think it's deserved. I mean, not to, to diminish certainly anyone who works on screen, but the fact that what you don't see is the 50 different takes that they, they took. You know, they can yeah. pick and choose. They can change the lighting. They can do all of that to be an actor on stage and to get it right then and there. That's got to be a tremendous amount of pressure, uh, particularly if you're a Shakespearean actor, because I, I think this is mentioned in, in season one. Also, we're going to do we're going to spoil the hell out of this show. So. Um, mm-hmm. uh, when the lead for Hamlet is discussing his reticence to doing the soliloquies, one of his points is everybody knows what you're going to say. You know, if you're doing an unknown yeah. play, that's one thing, but you're doing Shakespeare and people who are will people who are going to go to Shakespeare, chances are they know Shakespeare. And that's got to be really tricky, uh, to, to get up there and quote something that everyone is just quoting it with you along uh, along in their heads or probably out loud in some cases might be. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's he's not getting up there doing Timon of Athens, right? Or Timon of Athens, I suppose. Uh, or or you know, Pericles or whatever. He's 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 doing Hamlet. He is Hamlet in Hamlet and he's this sort of Tom Cruise sort of uh, uh, movie star who's never really done theater. And and what's, what I find so interesting, you know, the, 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 the season one structure of Hamlet plays with the sort of motifs of Hamlet in so many interesting ways. But one of the interesting ones that sort of I don't think is necessarily directly from Hamlet is if the artistic director who dies and becomes a ghost because Hamlet uh, and, and leads the way for our hero to come back. Um, if the artistic director had maintained and he had directed Hamlet, it just would have been a terrible production of Hamlet, and the movie star would have never really struggled to become a better actor to do it, right? Right. You know, it's like he would have come in, he would have learned the lines, he would have delivered them flatly and or acted them incorrectly. It would have been terrible. He would have gotten credit for trying, and he would have gone back to Hollywood. You know, but because this guy ends up, the, our, our hero, who is... A, a actor who played Hamlet once brilliantly seven years ago and had a complete nervous breakdown on stage um, comes back and directs him and essentially says like you can do this like and becomes instead of like the ghost absent father he becomes sort of like the Claud- the, the Polonius like I will give you advice and guide you father mm-hmm. of Hamlet it, he becomes the sort of good father who like actually teaches and directs and shows the young man here's how you can be and it which almost means it's sort of like a sort of weird riff back on hamlet that if hamlet had a better better father maybe <laughs> he wouldn't have been quite so flippant about what he was doing it's it it all sort of becomes very meta about itself and about the play it's sort of referencing um you know sometimes the references are to even other plays there's a great great moment in episode two I guess it is. I, I, I rewatched most of season one and then just snippets of two and three for this because they were harder to access and anticipate it. 
But um, when Ellen, the lead actress who has a tendency to be dating much younger men, uh, seduces the flower delivery boy, um, must be episode two, yeah, who is tending to her sick chameleon. (laughs) And she offers him uh, a cherry Coke, which seems kind of random. It's it's a reference to Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, is it? When when Blanche is when Blanche is trying to seduce the paper boy who's delivering, connecting for the Evening Star, she's like, and like it's very much a Blanche Deep Well, and then she's like offers him wine. And, uh, but yeah, it's she in her own mind, she's aware I'm acting like Blanche Deep Well, but I'm gonna go with it anyway, um, which is kind of great. And then so you have the the character being aware of doing it because she's an actress, of course she knows it. Mm-hmm. You have the writer putting it in hoping that someone in the audience will also get it it just becomes very like about itself but then about the thing it's great i love it i love all that sort of like metatextual there's a there's a um a line in season two episode one where ellen uh the same character is talking to um uh famous actress who doesn't appear again after season two episode one you were just saying that's her first role she was a doctor strange uh uh um, Rachel McAdams. Rachel McAdams' character. Boy, you'd think I hadn't been spending my last whole week watching this show, but um, <laughs> but she's she's explaining to Rachel McAdams' character that um, this is what theater life in a small theater is for. To go, um, that you are going to play uh, these young parts, and then as you get older, you're going to play these middle aged parts, and then as you get older, the only thing that has left to you is this, you know. And she is listing all the parts that she's played because she's not telling her this kind of information just out of the ether. She's telling this because this is something she's experienced, and yeah, she herself is going through a very similar crisis as Rachel McAdams' character. Uh, and yeah, so you're just drawing. I see. I would never have gotten that streetcar named desire um because it's been 30 years since i've seen the movie and i've never seen the play performed you know the closest i've come recently is a streetcar named marge uh from the simpsons but (laughs) (laughs) that moment might not have actually occurred in in that simpsons episode um but But even if even without the line even without the line which sort of like gives it away you know an older woman a hot young delivery boy comes you kind of seduce him like that—that's pretty. That's pretty streetcar. But I guess I guess you have to be somewhat familiar with the play, not just having seen it once, but like really seen it. And like, I think about that scene a lot actually, because I, I teach, and every time like a young student says something, I'm always like, "Don't be Blanche. Don't be Blanche." <laughs> Eric, I have to say, first of all, thank you so much for suggesting this show. I have watched the entire thing over the last couple of weeks. (laughs) I couldn't stop watching it. I actually watched the last episode this morning. Um, Other than being a great show, it's also like, obviously you learn about Shakespeare in school, of course, and you Mm -hmm. you read some plays, maybe watch a couple of movies. But other than that, in my own personal life, I really haven't had a lot to do with it other than a few Kenneth Branagh movies. (laughs) But um, this show actually made me go back and watch um, a version of Macbeth that Patrick Stewart did a few years ago. Oh yes, and uh, it's oh, it's really great. And and I actually stopped like season two is all about Macbeth. So mm-hmm. I got a couple of episodes in, and I was like, wait a minute, 
I don't want to ruin or spoil a 500-year-old play, so let me go back (laughs) and watch and check this out and see how it really is supposed to be. So I did. And when I came back to watch this season two, it made a lot more sense than it would have had I not gone back and watched it. But I wanted to ask you, are you a fan of Shakespeare's works? You know, do you have a favorite play? I am a huge fan of Shakespeare's work, um, and I do have a favorite play. My favorite play, uh, actually, I have two. If I if I if I'm like asked what what comedy or whatever, or I think a good entry play is, I actually really do quite like A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, which is the play they're doing very lifelessly in the beginning of episode one, um, and which is done so often. I must imagine at least two thirds of the time it's pretty boring. But it, 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 if done with any sort of wit or life, it's it's a genuine crowd pleaser. Um, but my actual favorite is Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, which uh, doesn't get done, but does get name checked as one of the roles that Jeffrey Tennant uh, has played. Uh, he played. They talk about his how amazing his Prince Hal is, and Prince Hal is uh, Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two's lead, or one of the leads in Prince. Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, who Prince Hal, who becomes Henry the Fifth, um, and I, I love that entire cycle from Richard the Second, Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, the Henry the Fifth, that sort of Henriad, some people call it, this tetralogy of plays that sort of link into one another about sort of the transition from the Plantagenets to um, the whatever the Henrys are, forget their last name, uh, that sort of. That sort of cycle is amazing, but especially Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two. It's just they're phenomenal plays, just phenomenal plays. I've seen them live. I saw the same production three times. Once for you know three times for Henry the Fourth, Part One, and three times for Henry the Fourth, Part Two because they're doing both of them. Plus, I've watched record you know versions and whatnot. It's what they did when they did the Hollow Crown with Henry the Fourth, Part One and Two, among other plays. So love those. Very cool. I was in Midsummer's Night Dream uh, in kindergarten, uh, and <laughs> I had forgotten that fact in, um, up until the point where I started were you watching. The, were you the changing the boy? So I was either, and I cannot for the life of me remember which, I was, whether I was moth or mustard seed. So I went okay. back uh, this week and went back and started rereading uh, the play, and they basically have the exact same line, so I don't think it really matters. Yes. Like they basically are like, "Hail, hail! I am mustard seed. I am moth." You know, so I think this. They said this is a Montessori school production. Um, I have photographs of it. You know, <laughs> like I'm I'm five or six years old. It's the only Shakespeare I ever taken part in, and uh, even though I've taken part in it, I guarantee you I had no idea what was going on. I just really like the fact that one of the older kids got to put a foam donkey head on, uh, you know, halfway yes. through. Like, that's... Um, uh, I, I, shamed to say I've never revisited it um, in text, uh, in film, or in performance. It's a delightful play. It's completely pointless. It is... Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's just no... It's... it's, it's it, it is a play designed to be sort of seen... And in a way, forgotten. Um, you know, it has beautiful speeches, whether it's um, and and quotations that we all know, like the course of true love never did love, never did run smooth, um, or um, uh, or the famous Puck speech at the end, 
If these shadows have offended, think but this, and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear. And this week, and I don't, you know, on, 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 onward. Um, there's a lot of really good quotable stuff in the play, but I mean, it's it literally is just a bunch of nonsense. Sure. But it is probably the earliest, to my knowledge, uh, known representation of people making fun of bad art. Because oh. there is a scene where, throughout the entire play, where these sort of noble people are running around the woods, falling in and out of love with each other due to magic fairies. It's just as serious as it sounds. Um, there are these other people, called off, usually called the mechanicals. There's like, and they're all, it's like a tinker and a carpenter and people like that. And they're all going to do this play for the king who's just gotten married. And part of the wedding feast, they're going to do this play. And they, like, one is, like, an overzealous director, and one is, like, a super hammy actor, and, like, one is terrified to do anything. And it's, re I mean, it's just stupid jokes, but it's really funny stupid jokes. And they put together this terrible version of this, of the story of Pyramus and Thisbe, which is an ancient Greek tragedy. And they put together this very, like, literally, we're like, okay, well, then you pretend to be a lion. It's like... But but then the women might be afraid of a lion on stage. It's like, oh no no no! I'll tell them I'm not really a lion. I'm just pretending. Like this is the kind of stuff the characters actually say. Uh, and so they do their entire horrible play. You see it happen live in front of you on stage. But the noble characters, who at this point are all sort of happily paired off, are just ripping on it. They're making fun of it. They're like, they're saying how ridiculous and how badly acted it is and how terrible it is. It's like primitive MST3K. It is completely insane. Uh, and if it's sort of, when you see that moment, you're like, we've been yelling back at bad art for a very long time, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it seems yeah. like Shakespeare's got a lot of opinions. Um, you know, yes. I, I, I will freely admit that I'm not not particularly familiar with Shakespeare's works. I mean, I've, I've read what was... I should have read more. I know I was assigned more in middle and high school, but I was, like I think I said earlier, not a good student, and I sort of rebelled. And it wasn't until I saw uh, Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead that I, mm. I had any kind of, a night, like, mm. you know, the movie first, and then I've seen the performance many, many times, and that is what has inspired me to watch Hamlet. And so Hamlet is, again, the only thing that I, I'm really familiar with. So when I started recognizing that there were tropes for Hamlet in this first season, I started looking out for them. Uh, and it's interesting because it's not overt. You know, there's a ghost, but the ghost doesn't necessarily do what you would expect the ghost to do. You know, Hamlet, the ghost of Hamlet uh, does not appear in, in the same sense, right? You were saying both Hamlet as father and mentor. Um, yeah. And so, you know, is Jeffrey, is Jeffrey um, uh, Hamlet in this telling of the story? And in some ways he is, and in some ways he's very much not. In some ways he's kind of Ophelia, and in some ways... Uh, the characters mixed up, so I kept on looking for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, and there's there's not really a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but there is a Holmesian double act uh, that runs through the entire which, series. Which could, you could say is which you could say is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in some way. Right. You mean the old like the old British theater queens? Yes. Um, 
But you also have the comedy undertakers. Right. Who were kind of comedy undertakers, like they're the undertakers in Hamlet. And that could be, I mean, yeah, it's not that they're ripping it. It's that there's all these echoes. Yeah. Yeah. Echoes is such a, a better term. Uh, this yeah, one. it's 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 pastiche and echoes, and so yeah, so Ellen is Gertrude, in some ways, the sort of person who was wedded to the corrupt leader, but she's also Ophelia, who's in love with the young man who is maybe mad mm-hmm. and is being driven mad herself by it, and so she gets to kind of do all the parts and kind of you know it, it's they they all get to sort of like encompass various of the archetypes. Yeah. Which is really good. I mean, I, I really – it it's nice to look at a piece of media and know that there is something that you can read into it more than what you're seeing. I've always, I always appreciate that. I will say about the comedy Undertakers, uh, watching them, I had less of a Shakespearean feel from them and more of a Neil Gaiman feel to them. They seemed like <laughs> a Gaiman-esque uh, double act. I'll, uh, for instance – Never wears Mr. Croup and Mr. Vandemar uh, in their speech patterns is is very similar to to that. Um, but yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Um, do you have a favorite character from the series? I know it seems like a uh. trite question, but you know there's so much going on in this series, uh, and the characters are yeah, no, they really are very three dimensional. It's one of the things I really mm-hmm. love about them. Well, sorry, the main characters are. The supplementary characters usually have their entrances and exits, but, like, there's not much else. Like, I feel like one of the problems I have with it is there's a lot of things going on that were never introduced to those characters. Like, when the cast leaves the stage, you're like, ah, I recognize that one, I recognize that one, and, oh, there's someone we haven't seen in the entire show. Would have been nice to have seen them perform or something, but... Yeah, well, that's the thing, is, like, there's also, like... Like they mention, for example, in season one, they mention that the cherry orchard is being performed, mm-hmm. and you see like the other directors because it's any large theater fe- festival, and this is based on the Stratford Festival. It's sure, called the New Burbage Festival. It's based on the Stratford Festival, but it's like it's not just one play at a time. Right. It's like all these different, and you never see the other, like almost never see the other plays. You don't see the other directors. The uh, it's they occasionally break with that in season two and three. When they start working, uh, bringing in, oh, what is his name? The awful director. When they bring him in more. Darren, yes. Yeah, the guy that dressed (laughs) like Adam Ant all the time. (laughs) Yes, yeah. When they bring in Darren more as sort of a direct foil, um, you see him doing his, like, directing techniques. And it's absolutely ridiculous and stupid. Um, But generally, it's very focused on our core little group. But, I, you know, I think that's fine. I think I would rather have... A sort of scene where you had a bunch of people who never got to talk, but that at least made it feel like a real stage rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Then have a scene where it's like only our five regulars and is like, where are all the extras playing guards? Where's where's the chorus? Where's, you know. Yeah. I mean, I guess so, they have to get paid if they talk. So there's like. Yes. 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 It can't be day players if they're if they're not speaking. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So no one jumps out to you as like this is the reason to watch or oh no uh, sorry uh, sorry well I don't I don't yeah I think the this is uh, like I mean I have a favorite character it's probably Anna <laughs> the administrator yes um I think she's I think she's wonderful I think her growth over the three seasons is really wonderful um but I mean the reason to watch it is if is is if you think it sounds interesting to see a show set 
among theater people by people who recognize that and firmly believe that theater is fundamentally important. Mm. That this is this is not waiting for Guffman. This is not <clears throat> some sort of show where it's just about spoofing the big egos. I mean, that happens by all means. Ellen gets the piss taken out of her all the time. Um, but when the Nigerian security guard, Neil, I believe his name is, talks about why he was, you know, when he was trying to do a play in Nigeria and the government sent like troops in to beat him and the actors and destroy their sets. And it reminds you, it's like in many parts of the world, theater is still a vital way of expressing political discomfort and political anger mm-hmm. and and of making protest. You know, I live in the Czech Republic, whose first president after freedom was a playwright, Václav Havel, who had gone run greatly afoul of the communists because of what he wrote in his plays. Like, and and the whole point of the show is that theater is not just getting butts in the seats to see Mamma Mia. It is not just getting the Shakespeare fans to buy the little mug that says, you know, Shakespeare lovers do it better or whatever. You know, that is not what you should be doing. And if that is what you think theater is about, then this is not the show for you, quite frankly, because <laughs> you were going to get you were going to get yelled at a lot. But it's a show that's just desperate to remind us, like, theater can be important. It can move people. It can, it can change the way you see the world, and it can affect your life in a profound way, in a way that other media simply doesn't do. Yeah. Uh, or, and and that's, that's why you watch Things in Uh that premise. So kind of to go back with what you're just saying about people who just don't, don't get it, uh, watching this, I think the my father was the one who told me about this program, and he gave me the the box set and says, "You're gonna love this. You and your wife are both gonna love this." Um, and you know, as an added bonus, Mark McKinney from the Kids in the Hall, which I love, is in it. Uh, and I started watching it, knowing that Mark McKinney wrote it, or was one of the three writers. But to have his character, who is a bean counter, who doesn't yeah. understand theater in the way that theater is being presented here. He likes musicals and I'm not slagging musicals. And I don't think his character is slagging musicals. Um, he, it's just a different type nope. of, of theater. And he is the character as far as Hamlet is concerned. He is, um, he's the King, right? Like it's, it's the plays, the thing that, that is it traps the mind of the King. Anyway, the plays, the thing wherein we catch the conscience catch of the conscience of the King. Right. So like it's his, Rather than giving up his, he, he he explains his guilty secrets. He he apologizes for being the the ass that he is because he sees mm-hmm. theater for what it could be. He still doesn't get it, but in that moment, there's that, that thing. And so I, I was watching like this is such an interesting part for Mark McKinney to write to choose to write for yourself. Like you know, as as mm-hmm. an actor who is also a writer, it's always fascinating to me to see what a writer slash actor will create for themselves. Like what is the impetus for creating that part? So um, low though I am to, to take part in any kind of technology because it's so foreign and horrible to me. Uh, I went on Twitter, which I don't do often. And I asked Mark McKinney. So I said, uh, Mark McKinney, I just finished season one of slings and arrows and I loved it. What is the impetus for writing a character like Richard? And Hey, Mark McKinney wrote back and said, all the peeps, who only half get it, exclamation point. Uh, 
And I said, gotcha. <laughs> so I said, was it a part you wrote because you wanted to play the character? And his response is, yes. And fun fact, I had to audition. <laughs> oh, that's great. But that's entirely the peeps who only half get it. Yeah. It's entirely right. Like, Richard is, through all three seasons, there are moments when you think he's going to come round. Mm-hmm. There are moments when he aligns himself with with Anna and and through her Jeff and and with Art over commerce and uh, and he just can never quite do it. And it's really interesting, even in season one where he's with um, Holly Day, ha ha ha, <laughs> the awful American business executive, where he they go to see Mamma Mia in Toronto. And he talks about how when he was a kid he fell in love with like cast albums. And the shows he mentions are things like Damn Yankees, and he mentions a chorus line. And he talks about how, like, they're entertainment. And I'm like, I wanted to say, bitch, have you seen a chorus line? That is a, I mean, yes, it is an entertaining show, but it is not just an entertaining show. The, the fact that he can't apparently see the difference in that moment between Mamma Mia and a chorus line is all you need to know about that character. That he doesn't see the difference between something that is serious and happens to have songs that are still serious and we're just dancing to ABBA. Mm-hmm. Like, and and that's, that's Richard in a nutshell. And I think it's so interesting that Mark deliberately wrote him to be this sort of like, he's, he's halfway there. He's like, he gets it somehow, but he's, he's too sort of whatever. To, to sort of really go all in on the sort of like art is important idea. Yeah. Um, Brent, you have watched the entirety of this program, something I, I can't mm-hmm. say that I've done yet. Did you, uh, was there a particular character that resonated with you? Well, I, I've, you were talking about Richard. I felt like he probably had the, the biggest character arc over the three years because by the end of the series, he's an absolute jerk. And you do, you know, all the comments he makes to Anna in the office and, and, you know, and then ending up pretty much abandoning the entire cast at the end of the show. Yeah. Um, But I would, you know, I hate to pick, you know, the, the main star, but just, I love Jeffrey. I loved every scene he was Mm. in. Um, Paul Gross, who I had only seen him in a show called Due South where he played a... Yep. Uh, uh, Mountie, mm-hmm. um, but he was great, and yeah. we see him as an arc also, pretty much becoming more and more sane over the series, because <laughs> <laughs> he's just about gone at the beginning, and you know he's gone for most of the show. But you, I, I love that this series also had an actual final episode. It didn't leave you hanging. It pretty much tied up most of everything, and yeah. And he he's able to let everything go uh, at the end of King Lear and and you know fix things up with Ellen and and all of that and I just love the whole show I, I loved it and we were talking about those two guys earlier the two queens you were talking about that sing, yeah. that sing the theme song at the beginning and the end and I looked at them as as basically the Greek chorus for a while, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in the first couple of scenes uh, of uh, of the show, and also the fact that they do the title song and the closing song, which 
the title song changes every year depending on what play they're doing. Yeah. But they, yes. they felt like a Greek chorus to me. Yeah. That's really neat. And how each season reflects the play that they're playing in mm-hmm. a way. Especially yeah. the last ser- series with uh, with King Lear and Charles. Yeah. Which I think yeah, that was it, my favorite season. But I would say it's the least funny of the three, season right. three. Except for just... that horrible, wretched musical that they did. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, it's um, it reflects the tone of Lear, which is this sort of steadily downward descent into terribleness. Um, but... But yeah, the sort of everything about it is note perfect throughout, um, especially throughout season three. I think I think it, there I think there is something. Lear is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. It's certainly my favorite of his like straight tragedies. Uh, and there's something really wonderful about this idea about this sort of slightly mad, but now at this point quite sane in his way, director asking this retired actor, being like, "You never got to play Lear." I want to see you play Lear. And then everything kind of going to hell because of that right. in some way or another. Um, and and then we get Sarah Polly playing the actress playing Ophelia. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, oh, I didn't realize that until I looked it up. I was like, oh my God, that was Sarah Polly, um, who's now gone on to many, many other things. Um, but, it, you know, that nicely reflects because the actor playing Lear is sort of awful to the actress playing Cordelia. Um, and then at the end, not to spoil it, but spoiler, you know, the actor playing Lear dies um, after having after having given this sort of and oh god, that moment when they lose the theater, like uh, Richard kicks the mountains if you can't do the production at the theater, and they've and and it's funny because Jeffrey had kind of gone all pyrotechnic for this, like he had gone like for the storm and the whole nine yards. It's going to be a really big production, and he loses the theater because of, I forget exactly what the issue was, but, and they end up doing it in like a church hall or something, or like an old folks home, mm-hmm. something like, and it's, and it's literally the barest bones. It is like nothing. It is a guy with a piece of sheet metal making the thunder sound. It's the actors. It's like no sets hardly. And it's, and it's, it's still theater. Yeah. It's like still that intense, powerful experience. And I've, the fact that the show at at the end came back to the core message, which was, it's not about the other stuff. It's about this. It's about these moments. Yeah, it seems like that it kind of bookends very well with what they're doing in the very beginning, where Jeffrey has got his, you know, his was it theater theater without money is the name of theater his, without money yeah, theater yeah. without <laughs> money, and he he takes his Hamlet because they've they've already spent all their budget in season one uh, on on um, was it Stu- Stewart's. Um, production, the garbage Hamlet, the rubbish, the rubbish Hamlet. Like it's like nope, you, the rubbish. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna get rid of that. We have no budget. Fine, we'll do you know essentially like a black box. Simple enough. Yeah. Um, when they ask the security guard, who I think is like one of the few actors of color in the the show that actually has a speaking mm. line, which is a, a bit, bit bit of a bummer that I've seen. And again, I haven't. Well, it is can, it is can, it is Canadian. Also, okay. Though. All right. Yeah, so I mean, not not to cut in slack, but like Canada is whiter than America. Sure, sure. Uh, they asked him when you when you did the production after you know like the the in I think it's season three episode one, the storm they use the storm the storm blows everything over and he walks up on stage you can tell he's just like he's gonna have to clean up this mess and they said what about you and he's like well when we did this we just had a guy with a metal sheet, um, 
Yeah. You know, and it's like, oh, well, that's what they're going back to. Uh, and when we, in that same episode, we see them in the old folks' home uh, performing what I believe is Midsummer Night Dream. Uh, and there's this, you know, one or two of the members are reading from a script. Some of them are reading it from memory. And uh, the actor who they have for Lear um, is is directing it. And there's like such a purity to that. So it's, it's nice to see that, yes, the, the acting theater is theater. It doesn't matter what the theater is. It's the it's the theater. If that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. It's the performance, yeah. right? Yeah. No, it's because because the first. It may not be the exact first, but I think it. I think it's the first moment in the show that gets the. Like I said, when they have that, behold the transcendent power of theater. They have that music. It's sort of like a little tinkling music, mm-hmm. kind of. Yeah. And it may not be the first, but I think it's the first. I think it's when the accountant guy, played by. One of the writers and creators, Bob Martin, mm-hmm. named Terry, in episode three or whatever, does uh, Macbeth's soliloquy. Um, she should have died hereafter. There should have been a time for such a word tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. When he does that speech and the camera zooms in on his face and like Jeffrey had sort of directed him to this performance and he kind of zoomed and the music is tinkling. And it's like it's literally like a corporate team building activity. You know, it's not... It's not theater or anything, but it is theater, right? Because he's he's expressing truth about humanity through words, and and it's just I love it. I, God, I love it so much. I just want to go and watch it right now. <laughs> it, it's and it's it's such a great thing because Jeffrey is has all these trepidations about being a director and being on stage, but um, you know he's known as being a great actor. But what we see, what, what could have been, I think, too easy. And again, haven't seen the entire thing, so maybe this happens. What we could have seen from an American production is he takes the role and becomes the actor once more and rediscovers that. Um, but but instead, every episode that I watched, he is an excellent teacher. What he is really mm-hmm. good at is demonstrating that passion for the theater to someone who has doubts, right? So whether it be his main star in Hamlet or the corporate retreat guy who you know reads that and immediately the woman who's never talked to him comes up and like <laughs> gives him that touch on the squeeze on the shoulder and says, that's a really good job. And they then cuts smash cut to them at the bar where he's like, she's never talked to me. Fuck. I love this. Yeah. You know, like he's yeah. really, really likes it. Yeah. No, he, he doesn't act. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it doesn't do that. Oh, I need to swoop, you know, Oh, the movie star forgets his lines and breaks his leg. I need to, swoop. no, it doesn't do yeah. that. And it could have so easily. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it becomes, it becomes weirdly enough a a a TV show about the importance of facilitating other people's dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, in a strange way, like it's not about it's not simply about like achieving your own sort of selfhood. That one form of selfhood that is worth achieving is the kind where what you do is you shepherd other people. Mm-hmm. That that is worthy. It's not just always about you. That other people matter. Um. Whether it's like granting your artistic director's last request that his skull be used in Hamlet, which is based on a real thing. Yeah. Famously, uh, Mr. Tchaikovsky left his skull to the Royal Shakespeare Company, and his skull was used in the David Tennant Hamlet. Oh, um, didn't know that. Oh yes, oh yes, that was a real. That was real. That was real. That was genuine. As a Shakespeare lover, and he donated his i don't know exactly how everything worked out legally but yep 
that's genuinely real thing. That's cool. But yeah, whether it's whether it's fulfilling Oliver's dream or whether it's helping, you know, the young actors sort of find their thing, or whether it's helping Kingman give this amazing performance as Lear before he dies, it's 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 really interesting to see Jeffrey sort of find his role as a facilitator and not as a star. Mm. Eric, how can people find out more about your shows and your prog blog on Patreon? Oh, they can uh, use psychic methods. That's probably the best. No, uh, the best is if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's SJC Austinite, A-U-S-T-E-N-I-T-E. That's S-J-C-A-U-S-T-E-N-I-T-E. Uh, you can find me there on Twitter. That's the same for my Patreon if you want to go and check out my Patreon where I write about Prague and do little podcasts for members. And that's and I, everything gets posted there, and in my bio you'll find everything else. So, yeah, that's the best way. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it is always a pleasure thank you to for having me. hear you talk uh, about anything. <laughs> uh, thank you. Come next week for my one-hour uh, one conference call on uh, laundry repair. <laughs> I'll take it. I'm there, man. You let me know. What about plug gaskets? <laughs> and thank you for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iheartradio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show at patreon.com slash whoandcompany or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. Okay, look, I'm not saying that evil isn't present in the play. What I'm asking is, are the events of the play driven by evil? Or is it that the characters themselves are just simply evil from the get-go? Yes. Which? The Scotsman is evil. Both he and Banquo encounter the witches. Both their futures are foretold. But only the Scotsman goes on a killing spree. The Scotsman? Oh, do you mean... Macbeth? Jeffrey, please. What? Don't say his name aloud. Who? Macbeth? You're just asking for trouble. Well, we are rehearsing a play called Macbeth. It's going to be a little bit awkward if we can't say the title character's name. This isn't actually a rehearsal. This is a meeting after rehearsal. Oh, I'm so sorry, Oliver. I forgot. You believe in the curse. And you don't? No. The only thing cursed about this play is that it is extraordinarily difficult to stage effectively. So you think you're above this kind of superstitious prattle? As a matter of fact, I do. Yes. You're talking to a ghost! Wake up and smell the coffin! Only understudy, I can't go on tonight. I'm drinking with my buddy, I'm getting good and tight. Before they raise the curtain, I'll be higher than a kite. So call me understudy, I can't go on tonight. Tell the cast and crew to break a leg, break a leg. I'll roll me out and up the bloody keg, bloody keg. I need to is the pain that life can bring. Life can and liquor is what will hit the spot The play is not the thing So call me understudy I think it's only right My diction will be money I'll ever find me light Before the intermission I'll be busy on a sprite So call me understudy
understudy. I can't go on. He can't go on. I won't go on. He shan't go on. I can't go on tonight, damn right. <laughs>